You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 216. This podcast is brought to you by all of the excellent people who have chosen to support it on Patreon. By becoming a supporter, you gain access to special ad-free versions of all of the episodes, plus special Patreon-only episodes, and most importantly, my eternal thanks. If that sounds interesting, head on over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to find out more. This is our second episode about the events in the Baltic countries after the war. Last time we focused on the events in Estonia, and this episode we will focus on Latvia. Latvia would be a key battleground between the Latvian nationalists on one side, the Latvian Bolsheviks on the other, and then groups of German soldiers known as the Free Corps and the Landswehr, which would act as a bit of a wild card in between. This mixture of forces would result in fighting that would move back and forth through Latvia as each side saw their fortunes wax and wane. During the First World War, and up until November 1918, Latvia would be occupied by German forces after they captured the territories from the Russians in the offensives of 1915. After the Germans retreated, the Bolsheviks would announce the creation of the Latvian Soviet Socialist Republic in mid-December 1918. They would make this announcement from Latvia's largest city, Riga, the city which would also be the focal point of Bolshevik support in the country. Bolshevik support had been strong in the city even before it came, they came to power in Russia. In fact, during most of 1918, the Russian Bolsheviks were heavily reliant on a group of Latvian volunteers known as the Latvian Rifles. This unit of the Red Army would be its most reliable troops for most of 1918, and they would be present for many of the most important battles of the Russian Civil War during 1918, and only later would they be brought back into Latvia itself to help fight for their own territory. The most immediate threat to the Latvian Bolsheviks was the socialist government that was created by Carlos Omanis. Omanis's government had been based in Riga before the Bolsheviks took over the city, at which point he was forced to flee to the coast. 
This flight was necessitated by the fact that Bolshevik power was much greater, both politically and militarily, and Omanis' government would find itself in a position of having to resist the Red Militias and Red Military Units, which numbered up around 45,000, with just a few thousand socialist troops. This massive Im initial imbalance of strength would allow the Latvian Soviet government to solidify itself in a way that the Soviets in Finland and Estonia were never really able to, and it would give the Latvian SSR a much greater chance of survival. However, these advantages would be squandered, and quite quickly. The reactions of the Latvians to Bolshevik rule was similar to what was being seen in some other areas that were under Bolshevik control. And that meant that as the Bolshevik leaders started to put economic and societal changes in place, they would first turn one group and then another against them. The first group would be the rural peasants. They would resist the policies of central purchasing and distribution by the leaders in Riga, who paid prices that the peasants felt were far below what they could get on the open market. This was similar to the reaction of the Russian peasants when the leaders in Petrograd began grain requisitions. The big difference was that in Latvia, the Bolshevik leaders were not strong enough to enforce their requisitions. Their attempts to force the rural populations to acquiesce, which involved the execution of thousands of people, just inflamed the situation even more. In the spring of 1919, they would also find that even the industrial workers in Riga, who had previously been the strongest supporters of the Bolsheviks, were beginning to revolt. In the case of the workers, the continued economic problems proved to be too much, with food being far too scarce and the reality of further fighting becoming undesirable. As I mentioned, the Latvian nationalists, after fleeing Riga, were critically short of troops. They basically did not have any. And so out of desperation, Olmanis would turn to the Germans for help. He would use the Baltic German leader August Winnig to initiate contact with other Baltic Germans, and also sympathetic leaders in Germany. Winnig would use the situation to his advantage, and he worked out a deal that would give Latvian citizenship to any foreign soldier who fought in Latvia for at least a month. This was important because Winnig wanted to invite German volunteers into the country, who would then become Latvian citizens, which would bolster the power of the Baltic Germans in the future Latvian state. As soon as the agreements were in place, advertisements began to appear in Germany, advertisements for volunteers to serve in Latvia. These ads promised the opportunity to help defend the Baltics and Germany itself from Bolshevik aggression, and the opportunity to receive land grants when the fighting was over. The call found many receptive men. The German army was demobilizing, and this left millions of men that were now on their way back to civilian life. Among all these veterans of the First World War, there were some that did not welcome the return to civilian life. They saw service in the Baltics as an opportunity for further military adventures. If everything went well, they would have their salary from the time that they spent fighting, and then if they survived, maybe an opportunity at a new life afterwards. Those who answered the call for volunteers would join something called the Free Corps. The Free Corps would be led by General Major Rudiger von der Goltz. Goltz had previously been the German commander of the troops that had been sent to Finland, and just days after arriving in Latvia, Goltz made it clear to the leaders in Latvia that now that he had arrived, he was, at least militarily, in charge. While Goltz certainly believed that the Bolsheviks were the primary enemy, and that he was in Latvia to halt their movement west, they were also not the only enemies that he was concerned about. Goltz believed that he was fighting several different enemies, including Olmanis' Latvian government, which he was theoretically in the employ of. 
Another entry in Goltz's list of enemies were the soldiers' councils that had been formed in the Latvian military units. Even the non-Bolshevik units were radicalized in Goltz's mind, and he felt that one of his first objectives was to bring them under German control. This mindset did not endear him to the local Latvians at all, and almost immediately there would be concerns both in the Latvian civilian and military leadership that the Germans were dangerous. There already had been concerns about the Baltic Germans, and now the Latvians realized that they had agreed to allow them to form their own foreign military service, and that was going to be a problem. The final enemies on Goltz's list were the Latvian Bolsheviks and the Entente. Now, speaking of the Entente, they had some thoughts on this new German military adventure. The armistice had forbidden any foreign German military involvements, but the Entente would make a special exception for the events in the Baltics. They would use Article 12 of the Armistice to allow the Free Corps to assist the Latvians. The article allowed for German military expeditions as long as they were done with the knowledge and acceptance of the Entente. With the fear of Bolshevism at its height in Paris, the Entente saw the Free Corps as just another way of slowing their advance west, and hopefully stopping it as well. Free Corps numbers began to rapidly increase during February 1918, and it was at this time that the original German Iron Brigade, which had been made up of Baltic Germans, was expanded into a division, and then another division was created as well, the 1st Guards Reserve Division, which would originally be made up of 5,000 men. It's probably important to note that these divisions, and during these campaigns in Eastern Europe that we've talked about so far, had a much broader definition than during the First World War. Uh, during the war, there were hundreds of divisions on both sides, and they were all generally roughly the same size. In the fighting after the war, divisions varied wildly. You could have 2,000 or 20,000 in some of the divisions, so just saying division sometimes doesn't help that much. With all of the new troops ready to fight, von der Goltz and the Latvians began to retake the country. Their first objective was to push south to secure the area towards Lithuania and this would be done by the 1st Guards Division, who advanced towards the village of Sholei. At the same time, the Iron Division pushed towards the city of Yelgava. Yelgava is a city about 20 miles outside of Riga, and if it could be taken, it would function as a staging point for an advance on the capital. The third objective would be attacked by the Landswehr, a unit made up of entirely Baltic Germans and Latvian troops. They would move towards the village of Tukums in the northwest of Riga. These attacks would begin on March 3rd, and right from the start it was successful. All three objectives would be captured in the span of two weeks, which left most of Latvia in the hands of, well, the Germans? After the success of the operation, Olmanis would begin to state his displeasure over the actions of the German troops. When they moved into these newly captured territories, they would often kill many of the enemy troops that surrendered, and then they would execute any civilians that were believed to be working with the Reds. The new fear among the Latvians was that they had just replaced Bolshevik domination with German domination. And this German domination was becoming more apparent every day, with Goltz taking actions to make sure his authority was not questioned, like leaving three battalions of very loyal troops in the city where Omanus' government was stationed until Riga was retaken, you know, just to keep an eye on them. These battalions took on the role of military police, and any actions by the Latvians that were against their wishes were quickly suppressed. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. 
That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. In April, Goltz and the Baltic Germans would proceed with the next step of their plan to take full control of Latvia. After an official announcement from Goltz, making it clear that he was the only military authority in Latvia, a new government was created. This new government was led by the Baltic Germans, with only some token Latvian representation. It would depose Olmanis as the anti-Bolshevik government in Latvia. The Western powers were displeased with these developments. Their relations with the Baltic Germans had never been good, and they'd only been getting worse since their free corps arrived. But unfortunately, there was basically nothing that the Western countries could do. When they demanded the reinstatement of Olmanis, Goltz simply threatened to leave the country and take all of his troops with him. Nobody was under any illusions that at this point, it is likely that if Goltz left, then it would not result in Olmanis retaking control, but the Bolsheviks. In this atmosphere of charged relations with the Western powers, the Free Corps leaders began to discuss their next step, an attack on Riga. There was little concern about the Bolshevik defenses in the city, and they assumed that it would be little more than a speed bump. However, there was concern that an aggressive attack by the Free Corps might further inflame the Western powers, who were at this point in May 1919 nearing the end of their discussions at Versailles. Goltz's plan to mollify the concerns of the Western powers was to put the Landsfair units in the primary position for the attack, since the Landsfair uh, were made up entirely of Baltic Germans from Latvia. An attack on the capital by these troops, who were Latvians, they were retaking their capital from the Bolsheviks, was hopefully okay. Now, the fact that these Latvians were ethnically German was just an interesting coincidence. The attacks against Riga would begin on May 22nd, and they would experience great success. The city had, by this point, turned completely against the Bolshevik leaders. There had been multiple waves of arrests and executions, and many within the city were starving. When they saw the advance of the landswear, they were happy. They didn't see them as conquerors, but instead like a relief force that was finally arriving to save them. Of course, as soon as the landswear were in control of the city, they unleashed their own wave of terror against real and perceived Bolshevik sympathizers. More people were executed, because that's how it goes, I guess. With Riga under German and Baltic-German control, Goltz began to plan for his next step. However, orders arrived from Berlin that he was not to advance beyond Riga. In fact, he was forbidden from personally entering Riga at all. 
These orders were prompted by concerns from Berlin. With the negotiations between Germany and the Western powers at a critical point, they did not want anything to happen that would cause further issues. On May 28th, a new player would enter the game, and Latvian and German units would make first contact with the advancing Estonians. At first, the relations between the Estonians and the Germans was good. However, their differences would soon result in fighting. The German-installed Latvian government, led by Andrivis Nidra, requested that the Estonians retreat back to the north. This was something that, even if the Estonians wanted to work with the Nidra government, they probably would not have done. In May 1919, the Estonian and White Russian forces were advancing towards Pskov, and the Estonian troops in Latvia were providing important security for those attacks and their southern flank. Instead of retreating to Estonian territory, the Estonian leaders instead sent a message to the Landswehr, demanding that they retreat to the south of the city of Sisis in northeastern Latvia. The Estonians were very forceful with their demands, because they believed that the Germans had no intention of fighting against the Russians in the east, and therefore they had to protect themselves. Therefore they wanted to take control of everything to the north and east of Sisis to provide for their own security, but this would also leave them in control of a good amount of Latvian territory. This was an acceptable side effect because the Estonians were working with Latvian leaders to provide support for their goal of retaking control of Latvia. After the message about Sisis was sent on June 4th, the Estonians prepared to advance against the German forces, and they would be joined by Latvian units as well. From June 5th to June 9th, fighting would occur between the Estonians and Latvians on one side and the Baltic German Landswehr on the other. They would be fighting for possession of Sisis, which would start under Estonian control. The Estonians and some Latvian artillery would be forced out of the village on June 6th by a German attack, and the next day Estonian reinforcements arrived and they prepared to attack again, which they did on June 8th. Now these attacks would be by and large very uncoordinated, which prevented them from actually retaking the village. However, the next day they would try again, and this would cause a reaction from the Germans. They would move up units of the Iron Division to take up positions in the town. And this was important because it was one of their few reserve units. So when the Estonians began an attack to the west at Lederga on June 22nd, there were very few German troops available to react and resist. A successful attack at Lederga threatened to cut off the German forces in Sisis, and so they would be forced to retreat unless Lederga could be quickly retaken. The Iron Division was moved west and was assigned the task of retaking Lederga, but they would not be able to accomplish this task, and due to this failure, the Germans would retreat to a line of German First World War trenches between Riga and Sisis. Overall, the retreat from Sisis would be seen as the point where the attempts by the Baltic Germans to install a German-centric government in Latvia would fall apart. Morale in the German units was collapsing, and the Estonians seemed to only be getting stronger as time went by because they were gathering more Latvian forces to their side. Just a few days after reaching the German trenches, another retreat would be ordered, this time to defenses right outside the city of Riga. This retreat, even though it represented another defeat, would actually end up helping the Germans to stabilize a little bit. The area that they were defending was much more compact, and they had more troops available to defend it. With their previous numerical advantage nullified, the Estonians and Latvians found it difficult to continue directly towards Riga. However, some units of Estonian troops advancing along the coast were able to find a crack in the German defenses, and they used it to flank the German defenses and push to their rear. The landswehr once again retreated, and they would begin to seek a ceasefire agreement. 
With such an advantageous position, the Estonians sought large concessions in exchange for the ceasefire. They would require the Landsfair and the Free Corps to give up Riga, and to retreat to the south and west to Tukums and Yelgava. This would be just the first step, and eventually the Free Corps would be forced to exit the country entirely. At the same time, the Estonians, with their primary objectives complete, agreed to move north and back into Estonian territory. This was important to Olmanis and the Latvian leaders, who were now growing fearful of Estonian power in their country. The concerns about Estonian intentions would lead the Estonians to allow Latvian troops to be the only ones that moved into Riga itself on July 5th. With the Estonians and Free Corps agreeing to leave the country, that left the Latvians and the Landswehr. The Landswehr agreed to be put under the command of a British officer, Colonel Alexander, and to move into eastern Latvia to fight against the Bolshevik forces that were still in possession of the eastern third of Latvia. They would accomplish this goal, they would do quite well, and Colonel Alexander would later go on to be a field marshal of the British army, leading British troops during World War II in the Middle East and Italy. Even after signing the ceasefire agreement with the Estonians and Latvians, and losing the Landswehr as an ally, von der Goltz was not ready to give up and go back to Germany. When looking around for other options, he began discussions with a little-known white Russian leader named Pavel Bermont Avalov. They planned to gather the Free Corps, and Russian, Latvian, and Lithuanian volunteers, and march into Western Russia. This was a drastic change in plans. The men of the Free Corps had originally joined with the promise of Freeland and Latvia, but this was going to be very different. And so they were all given a choice about what to do. At this point, many would choose to go back to Germany, especially those that had families to return to, but many others agreed to stay. Overall, this moment of change helped to make the Free Corps a more efficient fighting force. After the ceasefire, morale and discipline had reached a new low, with looting and plundering becoming almost the norm. When those that no longer wanted to be in Latvia were allowed to leave, those that stayed, although smaller in number, had much higher unit morale and discipline, even if their units were much smaller. As his contribution to the venture, Bermont Avalov would contribute 10,000 Russian troops, mostly made up of men who had been released from German prisoner of war camps. These troops would be drastically outnumbered by the Germans, but Bermont Avalov was serving a more important goal in Goltz's eyes. He was giving him an excuse to stay. All of these troops would be combined into the new West Russian Volunteer Army, which would work with the West Russian government that it hoped to create. These changes did little to change the views of the other political entities in the region. In Germany, the Weimar government, who was initially supportive of the Free Corps activities, were now almost desperate to bring them back to Germany to prevent further Allied anger. The Western Allies were becoming more adamant, now that the Bolshevik threat seemed to be reduced and Western-supported governments were in place in Latvia and Estonia, that all German military units had to come back to Germany right now. The British even went as far as to threaten the reinstatement of the blockade of Germany if it did not happen. The Latvians fully believed, even if the German troops had joined an army with Russian in the title, that they were still very much a threat to Latvia. Goltz would ignore the orders from Berlin to bring his troops home, but the growing political pressure on Goltz and Bermont Avalov forced them into action. The West Russian Volunteer Army had a total of just over 50,000 men, but very few of them would be available for any offensive effort. The vast majority of the troops would be required as security forces in the areas under their control in western Latvia. The maximum number for an attack would be uh, about 8,000. These men would be committed to an attack on Riga, which completely justified Latvian concerns about their intentions. So the objectives of this attack were not actually to succeed or to like take territory 
or to take Riga itself, but instead to force the Latvians to agree to some sort of ceasefire that allowed Bermont Avalov and Goltz to move east through Latvian territory. From the very beginning, the small advances that were made in the attack, which began on October 8th, would be hard-fought and costly. On October 10th, they got within artillery range of Riga, but this didn't really help because they didn't have much artillery ammunition to actually use, and so the infantry advance stalled. Bermont Avalov offered a ceasefire, with the core piece of this agreement being that the Latvians would support his attack into Russia. There was no immediate reply from the Latvians, who at this point were incredibly skeptical about signing ceasefires involving the Germans. For four days little happened, and Goltz actually traveled back to Germany to try and garner further support for his troops and to arrange for the shipment of winter uniforms, which would soon be very important. While he was gone, the Latvians would launch a counterattack. These attacks would be supported by British ships who would bombard Bermont Avalov's positions near the coast, allowing the Latvian units to advance. Steady progress was made throughout the last half of October and early November. Bermont Avalov then resigned as leader of the West Russian Volunteer Army, and the army pretty much just fell apart. The remnant of the Free Corps asked to be brought back into the German army while they retreated into Lithuania. They were closely pursued by the Latvian troops, who were at this point committed to pushing all foreign military units out of their country by force as soon as possible. No ceasefires, nothing. They're gone. They went so far as to officially declare war on Germany. The last Free Corps units would be pushed into Lithuania in late November, and the Lithuanians would join in pushing them into eastern Prussia. In the east, the Latvians, in conjunction with the Landswehr, renewed their offensives against the Bolsheviks, driving them back into Russia. The Latvians rejected any of the Russian ceasefire offers, but their attacks soon bogged down, due to just the scale of territory and the size of their forces. There would be another surge of progress when Polish troops arrived in early 1920, but in February an armistice would be signed with the Bolsheviks. Throughout the summer of 1919, the Latvians would sign official treaties, first with Germany and then with Soviet Russia. Latvia was now a country, but for its independence it had paid a very high price. By the time that the treaty with Russia was signed, Latvia's population was only three quarters of what it had been in 1914, with a full quarter of its 1914 population, or 700,000 people, being either killed, deported, or voluntarily leaving the country. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me for part three of our series on the Baltic countries after the war. We'll focus on Lithuania, but also take some time to talk about how each country made peace with Russia and what that meant for their future.